nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Today is March the 24th in the year 2009. <laughs> Easter is coming. Time to get resurrected. Yes, I, I um, looked around my shelves last night. I was looking for a book by D.H. Lawrence called The Man Who Died. It's a fabulous book that um, shocked me when I was a young girl of 20. I found it in the stacks one time over at uh, Moe's Books. It's all about a guy who, um, well, let's let's put it this way. Uh, he's supposed to be a Jesus Christ, and he doesn't die. He gets resurrected. He's um, brought back to life by the goddess... Uh, we'll talk about the goddess in a minute. I know how the, that word just irritates the hell out of some people. Anyway, uh, she's an Egyptian priestess, and she uh, uh, she puts him back together. The story, uh, you know, it's the story of Isis and Osiris, how the woman uh, resurrects the guy. It gives a whole new connotation to the phrase, I am risen. Anyway... The man who died, I finally decided, is just too scandalous, too scandalous uh, for KPFA these days. I don't know where we're getting these stuffed shirts. I, I, I get letters from people who are worried about our morality, you know, about our, our godlessness. That's a trip. I guess that's 2009. Uh, I thought of that the other night, watching uh, at, what is it, midnight, uh the old film, The Handmaid's Tale, with Natasha Richardson. Natasha Richardson uh, has just died in a skiing accident. She's the beautiful actress, the daughter of Vanessa Redgrave. And uh, I just thought, you know, she's so beautiful. What a loss. She had two sons, um, mid-40s, I think. But this, that movie, The Handmaid's Tale, must have been made when she was barely 20. And it's the one about um, a future in which women are color-coded in a society, a dystopia. It's uh, all theocracy, you know. Robert Duvall plays the bad guy, and uh, the wicked the wicked woman is Faye Dunaway. She's one of the sterile wives. They're all in blue. And the color-coding goes on... Uh, the worker women, you know, the cooks and the scrubbers, they're in a kind of a gray-green color. And the handmaidens, those are the women who are still fertile, who still uh, have healthy wombs. They are the ones in red. See, we have the blue sterile wives and the gray Marthas. 
then the handmaidens, uh, the fertile ones, and, oh, my favorite crowd is in brown. They are the, uh, I guess we call them the collaborators. You remember them in the death camps. They're the, the people, the women, women who pass on the patriarchal uh, theocracy. You know, they train the women, the teachers and uh, nurses. Uh-huh, we know those women. Uh, they're all over the Christian television network uh, speaking for the brothers. Anyway, uh, I'm going to save that for... Another day. I think today I just want to talk a little bit about Easter because a young person, a young girl asked me about it the other day about the eggs and things. And I was surprised that uh, being a Berkeley child that she didn't know about all the pagan origins, you know, how Easter is probably our oldest festival. It's a spring festival, of course, a name for Ishtar, um, for the goddess Eostra. Then later, you remember in the Bible, they watered that down to Esther. Um, it's all the pre-patriarchal religious celebrations. Anyway, I checked it out in the Women's Encyclopedia of Myths and Secrets, and I thought this might be a wonderful opportunity just to review our notes, boys and girls. Yes, let us go back and review our notes. It says here in Barbara Walker's wonderful book, The Woman's Encyclopedia of Myths and Secrets. I love this book. It's a source for poetry, you know. <laughs> She she really digs stuff up. Anyway, she says that springtime sacrificial festival was named for the Saxon goddess Eostre, E-O-S-T-R-E, or Ostera, O-S-T-A-R-A, a northern form of Astarte. Okay, um, her sacred month is Eostre. Monoth, the moon of Eostre. Anyway, the Saxon poets apparently knew that Eostre was the same goddess as India's great mother Kali. Beowulf speaks of the waters of the Ganges. Ganges waters whose flood waves ride down into an unknown sea near Eostre's far home. That's from the old English um, tale of Beowulf. Anyway, that Easter bunny is much older than Christianity. It is the moon hair. It's sacred to the goddess, you know, both east and west. Uh, it recalls, let's see, the Germans. Here it is, the Germans. Uh, they recall the myths of Hathor Astarte. She who laid the golden egg of the sun. Right. The sun is a golden egg. Uh, those Germans, yes, they used to say that the hare would lay eggs for good children on Easter Eve. It all comes down to threatening the kids. Right. Anyway, like all of the modern church's movable feasts, Easter shows its pagan origin in a dating system that's based on the old lunar calendar. 
You know, spring is always spring, sprung, right? It is fixed as the first Sunday after the first full moon after the spring equinox, formerly the pregnant phase of Yostri passing into the fertile season. Naturally, it is when my first son was born, 28 March. He just about made it on Easter. Uh, the Christian festival was not called Easter until the goddess's name was given to it in the late Middle Ages. Now, the Irish, they kept Easter on a different date from that of the Roman church. Um, the Roman calendar was imposed on the Irish in 632 A.D. The Persians began their solar new year at the spring equinox, and up to the middle of the 1700s, they still followed the old custom. Uh, yes, even the Persians did this egg thing. Uh, they used colored eggs for the occasion. Eggs have always been symbols of rebirth. Um, rebirth? Birth. I wonder why everything has to be born again. <laughs> I, I thought once was enough when, when I gave birth. Anyway, that's why Easter eggs are usually colored red. Red is the life color. Right, the handmaidens were red, coated red. Especially in Eastern Europe. I think of all those little nesting eggs, you remember? The dolls, they were always red. The Russians used to lay red Easter eggs on graves to serve as resurrection charms. In Bohemia, Christ was duly honored on Easter Sunday, and uh, his pagan rival was honored on Eastern Monday which was the moon day as opposed to the sun day. Yes, always the women get the moon and guys get the sun. <laughs> anyway, the village girls in uh, Eastern Europe, uh, they uh, sacrificed the Lord of Death. Yes, it was like they, they imitate the ancient priestesses. They sacrificed the Lord of Death, throwing him into the water and singing, Death swims in the water, spring comes to visit us, with eggs that are red, with yellow pancakes. We carry death out of the village. We are carrying summer into the village. Right, that's the Eros theory, theme, whatever you want to call it. Carry death out of the village. Get rid of it. <laughs> For a while, anyway. Um, Barbara Walker goes on and she gives a whole bunch of more examples of the sacred dramas, the pagan miracles and all that good stuff. Uh, she says, a curious 16th century Easter custom was known as... Creeping to the cross with eggs and apples. A significant use of the ancient female symbols of birth and death, beginning and fruition, the opening and closing of cycles. Hmm. Eggs and apples. Sounds like Halloween. No, no. Anyway, she goes on to say the ceremonial of the 
English kings ordered carpets to be laid in the church for the comfort of the king, the queen, and the courtiers. They crept down the aisle on their hands and knees. <laughs> she says that the uh, the female symbolic foodstuffs are a bit mysterious. I don't know. I don't think there's anything mysterious about eggs and apples. She goes on to say that Germany applied to Easter the same title formerly given to the season of the sacred king's love death. Now, this is in German. I can't pronounce it. It means the high time. Hochzeit. That's the high time. In English, too, Easter used to be called the high tide, spelled H-Y-E. The high tide. From these titles came the colloquial description of any festival holiday as a high old time, right? <laughs> anyway, <laughs> that's the bit about Easter. And I want to take time today, just, just for my own sake, because it fascinates me, to dig into the Encyclopedia of Women's Myths and Secrets and see what Barbara Walker has to say about religion in general. Uh, I... Uh, I have trouble with um, religion. I, uh, for KPFA, I usually refer to a wonderful book called No Gods, No Masters, uh, The Women Free Thinkers. It's a splendid, splendid book. Uh, I'll bring it again soon. Uh, it mostly quotes all the great women in literature and history and how they uh, got around the subject. And, you know, Elizabeth Cady Stanton rewrote the Bible for women and all that good stuff. But uh, I think most of all, I guess, uh, I still I still can't get past the fact that so many young people, uh, well, they, they will just out and out ask me, do you believe in uh, God? And I said, well, I certainly believe in metaphor. God is the ultimate mega metaphor. And we all know the crimes done in the name of religion, but we also know that secular societies can be equally violent. Uh, I think of religion as kind of an expression of our culture. You know, it's something to do with uh, this tendency we have to make up stories and to have myths and to give things meaning. Let's let's call it personalizing it uh, <laughs> There's a wonderful quote in Walker's book here. She says, she's quoting Sir Richard Francis Burton. He was an old uh, British uh, adventurer and traveler. He said, the more I study religions, the more I am convinced that man never worshipped anything but himself. Of course, in order to do this, you know, you have to project. Uh, you have to project your persona out onto other things, uh, anthropomorphosis, I can never pronounce that word, uh, you know, it's the Santa Claus thing, <laughs> the big, the big guy with the beard, um, the, uh, gods, that is, the idols, the images, the stories that we worship change all through history, uh, I have that ancient goddess by my uh, 
desk, you know, the one that's nothing but a huge belly and two breasts. She has no feet and no head. Uh, the fertility goddess. They used to, they used to, uh, uh, call those, uh, fertility cults when I went to school. God forbid that the ancient religion should be a religion. Uh, oh dear. It's so difficult. I, I always get a letter when I discuss goddesses telling me that if I'm going to be negative about patriarchal religion or uh, God, the Christian or Islamic or any of the modern gods, gods of today, I should be equally skeptical about an ancient goddess. And of course, I am. I'm only speaking metaphorically. (laughs) Yes, it's so difficult. People understand that, you know, uh, when you speak of something simple, um, when we say that, uh, let's see, uh, an egg hatches. I was trying to think of a good example of uh, a sort of ordinary daily metaphor. And I guess what it comes down to is if you think about it hard enough, all is metaphor. Certainly language is. Uh, language... You know, it allows one thing to create another, to give us an idea. Uh, anyway, let me read you a little bit of what Barbara Walker has to say in her Encyclopedia of Myths and Secrets. You can find this in most used bookstores. It's, uh, see, my copy comes from Harper and Rowe, if you want to call them up and say, where can you get a copy of The Woman's Encyclopedia of Myths and Secrets. And it's such a nice book. You can find all these things for uh, images in stories, uh, symbols, poems, that kind of thing, you know. Uh, We all know what the red carpet is all about. And, you know, the holy water, of course, is... uh, is, uh, Fluid, you know, the uh, uterine fluid that um, uh, arrives with the birth. But we've been so, uh, what do you call that, indoctrinated to find the whole process of birth loathsome and uh, unpleasant, you know, that uh, when people are told what these things really symbolize, they they wince, you know. Anyway, uh, Barbara Wonker says that, Latin, the word religio, R-E-L-I-G-I-O, meant relinking or reunion, a restoration of the umbilical bond between nature and man or between the mother goddess and her son consort, typified by human sexual union. Oh dear, oh dear. The Sanskrit equivalent was yoga, which also meant linking or joining. It's the root of the English word yoke. Yes, the yoke of the egg. A need to reestablish the mother-child bond in symbol may have been the source of all religion. Hmm. Anyway, she goes on to talk, well, she quotes all the pundits and the ones who define Religion is an infantile feeling of absolute dependence, you know, this desire to reunite with the mother. Uh, 
and the helplessness of infancy transmuted in religious imagery to a plea for a solution to the problem of survival. Right, I see a little infant in a crib calling out, you know, Mama. <laughs> it's very interesting. They look up from the crib and there are these titanic creatures, titans they were, the initial, what is it, uh, we call them, don't call them gods yet, when they were just titanic forces, uh, light, dark, you know, the elements. Significantly, Barbara Walker states, the mature caretaking figure, even in patriarchal religious imagery, was the female, not the male. God nearly always had a baby stage appearing in his mother's arms. But the goddess, even in her virgin form, was full-grown and maternally capable. Oh, dear, yes. Why are there no girl-baby gods? I have thought about this. I'm sure there there must be some somewhere. But uh, my mother always said, you know, there are two sorts of people. There are men and women, and that is parents and uh, children and parents, right? And you know which is which. Anyway, <laughs> they're the lucky ones, those guys. Anyway, Barbara Walker says, This curious fact that, that there are no uh, baby girls uh, imaged as gods may be based on the attitude of the worshiper to the deity as a child to a parent, the true biological parent is recognized by all mammals as the mother. Thus, even patriarchal religions conceal the uh, strong unconscious trend towards mother worship. Uh, oh, dear, it's such a strange, strange process, this, uh, this worshiping of, uh, what is that, uh, I guess the strong, the power person. Um, Freud defined religion as an attempt to control the mental world by means of a world of wishes. Aha, right. Religious images are fulfillments of the oldest, strongest, most compelling wishes of mankind. Apart from the wish to control the mother figure and the wish not to die, the gods, small g, the gods made in the image of men expressed a rather paltry and self-seeking series of wishes, obviously drawn from a limited imagination. The uh, philosopher George Santayana remarked, It is pathetic to observe how lowly are the motives that religion, even the highest, attributes to the deity, and from what a hard-pressed and bitter existence they have been drawn. Ah, oh, yes, what is it we desire from God? Mm. To be given the best morsel, to be remembered, oh, to be praised, to be obeyed blindly and punctiliously. These have been thought points of Honor with the gods. Yes, mostly they're exclusive. We think of the commandment, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Mm -hmm, I'm the boss of it. Anyway, 
She says, of course, these were points of honor with men first. Thinking of Sir Francis Burton saying, yes, he was convinced that men never worshipped anything but themselves. Uh, I mean, you know, who else do you see? Uh, anyway, Buddhist ascetics concurred, saying, a man's self is nearer to us than anything else. Indeed, dearer than a son, dearer than wealth, dearer than all beside that a man worship the self alone as dear. For if he worship the self alone as dear, the object of his love will never perish. <laughs> I remember a woman friend of mine saying, yes, she said, yes, uh, she loved herself best. She said, I'm the only one who will never leave me. Anyway, uh, Barbara Walker goes on to say, children were of no interest to the male ascetics. Realizing the glory of the self, the sages of old craved not sons nor daughters. What have we to do with sons and daughters, they asked. We who have known the self, we who have achieved the supreme goal of existence. <laughs> with the advent of male gods, religions tended to become obsessive about guilt and sin about what the gods might punish as hubris, fearful of giving offense by a careless word or deed. <laughs> In short, the gods behaved like not particularly loving fathers, or like elder males seeking to maintain ascendancy over younger ones. And here I have a thousand footnotes about, uh, you know, armies and generals and older males whose uh, jealousy and uh, competition with younger males causes them to behave in rather unkind ways. Uh, Walker goes on to write, The Judeo-Christian deity became one of the foremost examples of Oedipal hostility. Uh he punished the whole human race for one sin of a remote ancestor, punished so terribly the punishment lasted forever in merciless agony. The fear of so irrational and vindictive a deity drove a whole civilization into neurosis. Have a footnote here in reference to the great Elizabeth Cady Stanton, the one who rewrote the Bible for the women. She said that her childhood had been nearly destroyed by her fears of the evil one. She said, fortunately, she had a healthy constitution, and she she outgrew it. Anyway, Walker goes on to say, social evils that might have been remedied were left unchecked on the theory that all human beings were sinful wretches who deserved to suffer especially women, the primary sinners. Serfdom, slavery, legalized brutality, economic oppression, all were excused in the name of a vengeful God, whose priesthood insisted on his hostility toward humanity to the point where unspeakable atrocities were committed to the greater glory of religion. My footnote here quotes Voltaire. He said... Uh, if you can make people believe absurdities, 
you can make them commit atrocities. Walker goes on to say, Christian history shows that religion may follow a humane course in response to some social trends, but it does not lead the way. And then I have a list of all of the evils of secular society. <laughs> it's competing, it's competing. But obviously, um, religion is one of the mental illnesses and uh, it's not going to go away. I'll be back on the air this time next week, 3 o'clock next Tuesday, the 31st, last day of March. Last day of Women's History Month. Till then, go easy. This has been Jennifer Stone. If you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Racism starts there, starts where, where you, you, you meet with other people and have conflict. And of course, black people, if they want to do anything in America, have to experience this racism because you can't stay only among black people because black people don't own America. Walter Mosley's afflicting admission about race relations will startle some readers and satisfy many more. A quote from O Magazine. KPFA and Harnock Radio will present this great novelist in Oakland on Tuesday, March 31st at the First Congregational Church at 7.30 p.m. The event offers free parking and wheelchair access. Mosley will discuss his new novel, The Long Fall. Juno Diaz reviewed it as an astonishing performance that takes us to the lower depths but never leaves us without a light. Tickets for this KPFA benefit are $13 at the door, $10 at independent bookstores, and online at kpfa.org.